know, I don't think sales is a bad thing. Maybe that's controversial with me. But I think if you talk about sales in the truest sense, what we're talking about is giving people the opportunity to make an independent decision about what is best for them. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. I have with me Jessica Lorimer, who's a renowned sales coach, a motivational speaker, and the founder of Selling to Corporate, a UK-based organization specializing in helping entrepreneurs boost their profits. If you've been in business and selling mostly to individuals and you've never explored the world of B2B sales, we're going to look at perhaps some opportunities you've been missing out on and what does it mean to get started? How is it different? And some of the things we should really look out for if we're going to go there, because what you might discover is the opportunity makes it worth it for us to go and discover. Jessica has over 15 years of experience in sales, has worked with over 10,000 entrepreneurs worldwide, helping them secure, get this, five and six figure contracts with corporate organizations. She was a top sales performer for a Fitseat 250 company. She now shares her expertise through the Smart Leaders Sell podcast, as well as the release the book of the same name, has her own community as well. So with that, excited to have Jess here joining us. Welcome to the Selling with Love podcast. I'm so excited to be here. And that was a very fancy intro. So hopefully I can live up to what you've said. <laughs> Well, I, I know you can. I know you've been doing this for quite a while as well. So, um, you know, one of the things I might want to just get started with is that most people, when they get started in sales, I know for myself, like I started with telephone sales in real estate. This was very B2C style. So I'd be curious if B2C, is that kind of the entry point or did you start right into B2B? Do you know, it's really interesting. So I actually got fired from a coffee making job when I was 16. And I ended up walking across the road looking very dejected from this job because I made 16 cold coffees with a barista machine. It's like something they'd never seen before. And I was like this little 16 year old dejectedly walking across the road. And I sat outside a jewellery shop. And this lady came over to the jewellery shop. She was looking in the window and I said, oh, what are you looking for? And we got to chatting and she was buying something for a relative. And I went in with her and we ended up buying something quite expensive. Obviously, it wasn't my money, so I didn't mind. But I was very, very into what she was doing. And the manager said, oh, are you guys related? And I was like, no, I've just met her outside. And they offered me a job. So I started off in jewellery sales when I was 16. And I went into recruitment, technology recruitment, straight out of uni. There you go. And so it does seem like we are naturally going to be finding ourselves maybe getting a taste of sales in the B2C world before we even consider going into that more corporate world because it seems more complicated. Like if I look at examples, you know, the media, the movies, they're usually demonstrating to you some B2C sales. So I'd be curious to know when you made that transition going into recruiting, which was a much more corporate focused type of sales, what were some immediate differences you noticed? Some of the things I noticed were the deal sizes. You know, if you sell jewellery, even if you sell high-end jewellery, you are limited by the margin that we put on the product, right? So if you buy a diamond ring, for example, from a company that I worked with, you'd be spending maximum of 10 to 20,000 pounds, which is great. That's a great deal size, but that's unusual because the most or the majority of people who come in and buy jewellery are buying 
9.99 earrings for their kids, you know, because they've lost their studs again. So for me, the biggest difference was coming in and seeing the deal size exponentially go up because you would be recruiting people on you know, 80,000, 100,000 pound salaries. And we would be charging 30% on top of that to the client. So suddenly you're making these deals where the commission is higher and where the value is more and also where the product can change its mind. Because when you work in recruitment, not only are you selling to the client, but you're also having to consistently sell to the person and keep them in the job for the rebate period, which if you guys have ever been recruited, you'll know that your recruiter is very nice to you for the first three months you start your job because we don't want you to leave, right? That's the insider trick. (laughs) But you have to do that consistently, right? You have to keep selling the client, the person. You have to navigate all the communication challenges in that. And so for me, those were the two biggest things, having a product that could change its mind and having huge deal sizes that automatically felt a little bit more scary. Tell us more about that fear. I think, and this is something that I see quite a lot, so I would say it's relatively normal, but when we start seeing bigger numbers involved in sales, it becomes harder to detach ourselves from the process. And you might see this as well. But I think that people get a lot more worried about rejection or a no from a bigger deal than they do from a smaller deal. And it's one of those things that also I find contributes to a lack of confidence in pricing because people automatically assume almost that if we charge less for something, it becomes so much of a no-brainer that it's easier to sell, that somebody, of course, will buy it. And we know that's not the case, you know, logically, we know that's not the case. People are looking for transformation. But I think we have that automatic association, and I certainly did when I started out, with higher prices means more risk, means higher likelihood of rejection. And over the years, those are all things I found not to be true. Interesting. So when you put it that way, and obviously we just touched the surface, you suggest that, okay, when you go into the B2B world, you're going to be dealing with much higher price points, which means much bigger commissions. So why is it that not all of us are just jumping and going into corporate sales, knowing that there's more money to be made there? It's a funny thing, isn't it? And I actually delivered a training session yesterday where we were talking about exactly this. And somebody said, but why am I not selling B2B then? And I was like, I don't know. So the actual statistic, if you look at it, is that the average B2C business to consumer sale is worth £1,500 in the UK. So that's £1,500. And, you know, you and I both know this. We both have sold to consumers in the past you will have to have email marketing software. You will have to post on social media. You will have to have some kind of constant content creation like this podcast or my podcast, a newsletter that probably goes out multiple times per week. Not to mention the fact that you're going to be doing live launches. You probably have a VA involved or some kind of team member. And so your operating costs are actually quite high. Not to mention the amount of work involved. The average B2B sale, so business to business sale in the UK, is worth £10,000. So that's five times more. And actually, if we look at the operating costs involved, we don't have to have email marketing software. We don't have to spend our time on social media. We don't have to do the constant content creation. We don't have to have podcasts if we don't want to. In fact, the only things that my B2B or the clients who are selling B2B have is a newsletter once a month and they do proactive outreach. That's it. That's all they do every month. And so when we think about, well, why are we not all doing it? It's the normal things, isn't it? We worry that maybe we're not the right fit 
for corporate companies? Do we have the right personality type? You know, are we selling something that they actually want to buy? Are they going to be difficult to deal with? You know, most of us have had a bad experience as an employee. So we worry that that's going to go into when we become an external supplier. Are we going to be undervalued? Are they going to be overworking us? Are they going to creep outside the scope that was originally set? So I think we have all these fears of the unknown. And then what happens is we never make a move on it because even though we know financially it might be better for us, it just seems difficult and scary and process driven. And, you know, that's not everyone's favorite thing. Fair enough. You know, I often speak about how we build a caricature of the salesperson sometimes from media and movies being like a used car salesman, being the most gen- wolf of Wall Street. The older generation would just say Gordon Greco out on Wall Street, yeah. right? <laughs> it's interesting because for me, I have an assumption that a B2B salesperson has a very different personality than a B2C salesperson. Is that just a wrong assumption or have you noticed some key differences? I don't think it's a wrong assumption so much. I think that there isn't really a big difference in terms of their personality type. What there is a big difference is in the way that they market. You know, B2C, I think, is very much about being accessible for your audience. It's about building that personal brand. And I actually think it's one of the reasons that we struggle with rejection when selling to individuals, because you do so much work to build this personal brand, every no feels like a no on you, your personality. Whereas B2B, they're buying based on the transformation, right? It's not their money, the stakeholder involved. It's not their cash. They don't care. They want the result that you're promising. And so actually, what I've found over the years is that the actual personality types tend to be the same. You tend to get four main personality types in both. But what happens is the way that you show up publicly is different. If you sell B2B like me, you don't really have to do a lot of public marketing. You know, I don't. My consumers, you know, my stakeholders, my decision makers, they're not bothered if I'm posting on LinkedIn every five minutes and they certainly don't care what I ate for breakfast. What they care about is, you know, how am I showing up when I'm working with them? Am I doing the things that they've paid me to do? Whereas when I was in B2C, people really did. They cared about the behind the scenes and, you know, what's the magic behind the curtain? And that's very draining. I would agree. There's a lot of work that goes into having a market and have your personal brand. And if you're saying that going into B2B space doesn't demand that as much, then there must be some other activities that are quite important to do in the B2B space. And I'd be curious to know, like, what are some of the main activities that a B2B person needs to do to in order to be successful that we might not see as many people doing in the B2C space? I think the biggest difference is the proactive outreach I think it's the bit that scares people. When you say proactive outreach, everyone thinks cold calling. And don't get me wrong, like you can cold call if you want to. Most people do not. I do it for fun. You know, sometimes I will literally go into client spaces with the sports teams that I work with and I'll just do it for a laugh because I enjoy the adrenaline. But when we talk about proactive outreach, essentially what we're talking about is qualified lead generation. And that just means targeting the right stakeholders who are going to A, be interested and responsible for your area of specialism at the organisation they're working for, and B, have the budget to pay you. And however you choose to do that is fine. You can do it through LinkedIn, you can do it through cold email outreach, you can even do more interesting things like speaking for leads at corporate conferences or going to networking events or hosting your own executive roundtable. But I think that we almost forget that if we're operating a B2C business, we're doing 
lead generation all the time, but we're thinking about it like a funnel. I know that you'll all be listening to this being like, okay, we've been in the online marketing while, you know, we know what funnel is, but essentially with a funnel, we're talking about a triangle that's upside down, aren't we? What happens is we're supposed to get as much volume in the top as we can. We're supposed to get as many people in the top of our funnel as we can. And the hope is that through our content over time, we'll whittle them down into buyers. So that tiny point of the triangle at the bottom is your buyers. And for me, that's always felt a little bit pointless, a little bit, I'm lazy. So it's not the quickest way to get to the goal, right? And for me, spending thousands of pounds on Facebook ads to get this volume of potentially unqualified leads in at the top and then create podcast episodes, newsletters, launches, free webinars, all the stuff that we do to hope that a tiny percentage of those people will buy seemed like a lot of time, energy and money spent to do something where I was going to make five times less. If we think about B2B in the same way, what we actually do is we flip the triangle. So that tiny point of the triangle that was previously bias from a B2C funnel is actually the stakeholders or decision makers in companies that we target. We make a list of the job titles. We make a list of three to five people in each organisation that we think, yeah, they are going to be either responsible or interested in our area of specialism and they're probably going to manage a budget. And we proactively target them with one method of lead generation. And what that means is that over time, your kind of triangle fills out with business development activities like keeping in touch, following up, having sales calls. And then it goes down into sales, which gives you a bigger percentage of people that are buying because they're all targeted. And then it goes down again a step into referrals because, you know, it's not like the B2C world. They like to refer things and you get more sales. And then eventually it goes into people who've left the original company you've targeted They move somewhere else in the same industry because that's what we do when we're employed. We go to the same kinds of companies and we make sales there and we continue with referrals. So actually, what's interesting for me is that we can create this whole essentially upside down funnel that makes our sales activity much easier over time. Does that make sense? Yeah, if I understand this correctly, like you're basically, you know, there's the expression of spaghetti on the wall. I don't think I like the expression, but we're going to use it anyway, which is like, you know, throw out some stuff and see what sticks, right? So it's just like, I'm going to do this content, that content, just see like if it resonates with someone, maybe I'll get the attention of a few. And then once a few actually comes down the pipeline through the email, through the webinars, all these things that we do in online marketing or direct sales online, then eventually you'll be in a conversation with someone's qualified. If I understand this correctly, being a reverse funnel is you get so specific and you target someone that's such a valuable person that you're like, that would be a deal worth it. And then you expand. So it's not like a funnel, but it's more like building a web of contacts, which can lead to supporting sales, referral sales, actually helping you close your initial plan. And so you're kind of building that ecosystem and nurturing a lot of relationship. I feel like this would appeal to a lot of people who might self-identify as more introvert because you're focused on a lot less noisiness and kind of this like ah energy that you need to put out by always being like hi everyone welcome to my youtube channel (laughs) (laughs) yes and by the way i've been there i've done the facebook lives for a year and been like oh my god and as an introvert you know if, if we look at the traditional definition of introvert as being somebody who does not recharge their energy by being around people and and finds it draining then yes 100 percent, because you build those more in-depth relationships 
where you actually know the stakeholder well and where you can become a consultative sales partner because you're talking about what matters to them, what their problems are, why they have fixed something or haven't fixed something and what that's going to look like moving forward. Whereas people who are potentially more extroverted or who you know, if you have done wealth dynamics, maybe you identify as a star personality, they like to broadcast and they like people to react. So they're more content driven. They're able to produce reams and reams of content and be okay with people reacting to it. And they've got the energy to do that and it recharges them. Introverts, not so much. We don't do small talk well. And it's much easier to have a good relationship with, you know, a hundred stakeholders who are clear decision makers who are qualified than it is to build a relationship with multiple thousands of people in order to build and influence a brand. That's very interesting, especially with the fact that, you know, if you're doing a lot of B2C sales, sometimes you have sales calls with people that could be actually quite draining to have conversations with. Like it could be people that are really just wanting to have you listen to them. And, you know, you're trying to offer as much support as possible, but you might be investing, what, 30 minutes, one hour, for it not to lead to any kind of activity and also not leading to any significant kind of asset building because you speak to the lead, it's not going to be something that becomes a node within your network that could potentially open more business. As much as I would see every single conversation in B2B, you never know where it can connect the dots to something more relevant. So it seems efficient. Yeah. And again... (laughs) With everything we're saying here, now we're making a pretty good case for the B2B side. And I know you've helped a lot of entrepreneurs and and like people actually either start from zero and get into B2B. Is this something that you can go straight into it? And I'd love to maybe hear the story of one of your students once they've embraced this power. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk about a lady called Kay. She's a really good example. And her name's Kay Fabella. If you want to go and search her out on LinkedIn, you absolutely can. She is somebody that I've known for years in the B2C space. And before working in the B2B world, she was a storytelling coach. So she helped women who were diverse of background to look at the stories around their generation, their race, and help them to use that to stand out in their markets, to own and be authentic. Really, really interesting niche. And she came to me in 2020 when the world went kaput. (laughs) Not necessarily the safest time you would think to go to B2B sales because all we heard in the media was everywhere shutting down, companies are nightmarish to work with. But she came to me in 2020 and she said, I need to make this change. I cannot keep working with individuals anymore. It's so emotionally draining um, because you're hearing quite horrific stories a lot of the time. And I want to move into the B2B space. And I said, okay, cool. And she started and she followed my process. So for the benefit of those of you who don't know me, there's a five-step process that I've developed that helps you to sell to corporates. So you've got clarity, which is the understanding that you know who you want to sell to and what you want to sell to them. Then you've got lead generation, that process of developing and generating qualified leads that want to talk to you. Then you've got business development, the process of building, maintaining and leveraging those relationships so that you can make sales, offers and proposals. So creating solutions that meet a need and articulating the well to a client and then delivery and resell, delivering a great experience and then reselling to that client so that you don't have to have thousands and thousands of new clients. So she embraces process and within her first six months, she was head down 
in lead generation. She decided the industry she wanted to work with was technology. So she was out there and she was doing her lead generation using LinkedIn. And so she was proactively searching for stakeholders and decision makers, messaging them, using customized templates. And she was building this database of leads and booking these calls. And she decided that she wanted to put a new method of lead generation into the mix that could give her some real solid relationships. So she hosted an executive roundtable. And I remember her saying to me, she was like, but who's going to come to this roundtable where I'm talking about the future of the industry because I'm just this one person. And she invited big name companies and surprise, six of them showed up. And she had this amazing roundtable and she talked about the generational differences in technology companies. And she created this incredible report from it and sharing their insights for other stakeholders in other organisations to read. And that actually led to her making her first six figure month ever. So not only was it her first six figures, but it was her first six figure month ever. And she had her first 100k month in July 2021. Um, which was huge. Up until that point, she'd been making sales. She'd been, you know, getting the the 10K sales, the 15K sales. But this was her first big month, um, which was arguably like huge. I, You know, that's an impressive amount of revenue to generate in 30 days. And from there, she went on to continue following the process to build out those relationships deeper with companies like PepsiCo, with companies like Facebook, Meta Instagram with companies like Red Hat, the CRM system, Active Campaign. So, some familiar names here for you guys. And she sold to these companies and she is supporting them with diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies. And that's continued. You know, Kay's business is still going great guns. She's had, you know, she had her first multi six figure year. She's on track to do the same again. More importantly, she is helping companies that we use every day to make the lives of their remote employees better, to help, you know, during key incidents that we could never have predicted. You know, she was the support for a lot of companies when the George Floyd incident happened. She was the support for a lot of companies when they realised that actually Asian employees were being treated differently because of the media representation of the COVID pandemic. So, she has been behind the scenes on some of the major inclusion projects in companies around the world. And I think that is a huge impact to leave. That's really incredible. And, you know, already you can see that journey is like for some people, the six figure month might not even be in the realm of possibility. And I think for someone like your student, like she broke that and now she's like, wow, this is possible. And then you just keep going with this new frame of reality. I think that's absolutely incredible. And again, you spoke about the habits of what she needed to do, which was the prospecting and doing these things to bring the industry together. Again, it's all sounding amazing. And I'd be curious to know, like, there's got to be some tough aspects here. And there's got to be some things that we need to develop within ourselves before we become someone that's qualified and can be taken seriously in a B2B world. Because I think a lot of us might be intimidated to go to corporate and look ridiculous. I think a lot of us look at a corporate company, you know, because I've got multiple clients, for example, who work with Netflix. And Netflix are one of my favorite companies in the world. I love watching TV. And they've always said to me, but Jess, why would they want to work with me? 
And I think, you know, we can get really in our head about being a small supplier or a small business owner. But actually, it's so much better for big companies because as smaller organisations, we can be far more adaptive. We tailor things in a way that bigger organisations can't. And when they pay a small supplier, they're not paying the operating expenses to have fancy offices in a, in a big city in the world. They're not paying for that company to keep the lights on. They're not paying for an expensive graduate programme where somebody with zero experience is turning up and, and potentially delivering something that is a huge project for them they're actually paying for people who've got the benefit of years of expertise in their area of specialism, who probably are very passionate about it and therefore reading around their topic regularly or listening to podcasts and things to develop um, or even taking additional certifications. You know, again, none of these things, additional certifications and qualifications are not necessary to sell to corporate companies. But if you are passionate about your area of specialism and you have them, it's definitely a selling point because it's proving that you are doing your own development to to become better, to deliver better results. But I think the thing that people find tough about selling to corporates is we think we have to pitch them right from the beginning. I don't think that that's true. You know, we've all watched Wolf of Wall Street. And I think one of the things that people take away from that film is that that company made a load of money selling scam things. You know, essentially, that's what Jordan Belfort did. There's no shying away from that. But if you look at the actual sales perspective of that film, the quote we all remember is the sell me the pen, right? We remember, oh, yeah. And you just have to ask them, well, do you write your name? And they can't, so they have to buy your pen. Now, real life isn't like that. That's not how it works. But what we actually look at throughout that film, if you look at the examples, whenever he is on the phone, he talks to people and is genuinely curious about why they are doing something or why they're not. Or at least they feel that he is genuinely curious. Whether he is or not is up for debate, majorly. (laughs) But that's what we need to do with corporate companies. When we're talking to stakeholders, it is not a case of, hey, let me pitch you this thing. Let me show you what I've got. Let me tell you how great my workshops or my lunch and learns or my coaching is. Actually, it's about saying to that stakeholder, okay, so can you frame the problems that you're having for me in the context of my area of specialism. So, you know, how are your salespeople performing? Is it good? Is it bad? And if it's bad, okay, why do you think that is? So that you can get as much information about the problem as possible. And then they're self-identifying along the way. Well, actually, yeah, we do have an issue. And actually that issue is costing us a lot of time or money or energy And maybe we should fix it. And because you're the person asking the questions, you're automatically demonstrating that credibility that we worry about so much. And actually the stakeholder comes to you and says, well, you've helped us realise we've got this problem. So can you help us solve it? Can we buy from you? What do you have? It removes the need for the pitch. And it helps you, I guess, in the best way, sell without being salesy, which is what everyone seems to want these days. But essentially what we're talking about is those transparent conversations where we are interested in other people. I was going to say, this concept of salesiness, do you think it's something that would be necessary in B2B or is it something we should be completely tossing away? Do you know, I don't think sales is a bad thing. Maybe that's controversial with me. But I think if you talk about sales in the truest sense, what we're talking about is giving people the opportunity to make an independent decision about what is best for them. So when we talk about being salesy and offering somebody the opportunity to make a decision, they get to say yes, they equally get to say no. That is fine. 
you know, transparency is a good thing. I think where people go wrong is when they try and hide that they want someone to make a decision about something. And that's when we see the awkward pictures in the Facebook DMs or whatever, where <laughs> I got this recently, it was my birthday, and someone slid into my DMs on Facebook and they're like, happy birthday, I hope you're having a great day. Also, you know, just in case you eat too much cake, would you like this Juice Plus link? <laughs> it's just like, mm. I was like, that felt a little bit gross. But if they'd have done it differently, you know, potentially, would I have seen it in a different light? Yeah, maybe. But it was the fact that they tried to hedge around it with, oh, it's your birthday and I'm going to try and be friends and force a rapport, even though I've never spoken to you. And it's that kind of thing that makes it feel gross. So I think we have to come away from this idea of salesy being wrong and actually think about what the problem is. And that is lack of transparency. Hmm. Well, you're talking to the guy who talks about selling with love and wants to bring integrity. So I agree and uh, I would share the same opinion. So I'm glad we brought that out. There's something I thought was very interesting from your framework, especially the first step being clarity. And, you know, at first when you were going through the model, I thought it was like, hey, identify, you know, the needs and the problems of the client. But when you're speaking clarity, you're talking about your own clarity about what you're doing in sales, right? Yeah. And I know that this is something that you go in on as well. And I think we've got very similar opinions on it. Like clarity to me is the most integral part of a sales process. If you don't know what you're doing, you are never going to achieve it. You know, it's like getting in your car and expecting to know how to drive to, for me, Scotland is like 800 miles. I wouldn't be able to do it without plugging in the destination in the sat-nav. But people do it with sales because they expect or they hear, oh, well, you can just make 100k a month. You can't. You have to know, okay, what am I doing? Who am I selling to? What is the transformation that I'm going to provide? You don't have to have all the ins and outs necessarily. You don't need to have all your offers mapped out and things, but you do need to know where am I going to focus? Which industry am I going to focus on? Because that's going to give you the ability to add more value to your sales process, right? Like you talk about this a lot as well. And I know, again, you know, it, it's not we're not talking about clarity here as being a lightning bolt from the blue that you just get one day in the shower. You know, it's a process. It takes time. You have to wade through the treacle. <laughs> Fair enough. No, you're right. And I think that's something I want to make sure we reinforce because getting that clarity is actually what gives you that power as well in the sale. And then you can show up authentically. I was going to ask you one question that I'm very curious to hear your opinion because when you're going to sell to corporate, and I know in your experience, you found yourself doing recruitment, and uh, now obviously you're doing sales training for entire organizations. And for some people listening to this, maybe they could be consultant coaches or running a service-based business. And my question would be, do you suggest people to go and sell someone else's products in corporate before going to sell their own product, or should you just go right in? That's a really interesting question. It's actually something I've never been asked before, so thank you, because... <laughs> I've spoken to a lot of people about corporates and nobody's ever asked. So I think you should absolutely be selling your own products and services to corporate companies. I think that, you know, and I know there'll be people listening to this podcast who have sold to corporates before and who haven't. And the biggest or the most damaging thing I see that is a mistake that people make when trying to sell to corporates is they use the bad habits that they've picked up elsewhere and they try and repeat them with their own products or services. So the biggest disadvantage I would say that I had was selling other things and knowing some of the bad habits of the trade. 
and knowing some of the sleazy things that people will do to make a sale. And that was really hard for me because I just assumed everyone then was doing that. And it made me really cynical about the process. I didn't assume that people were selling authentically. I didn't assume that people were buying authentically. And that was a problem. If you're newer to selling to corporate, you can build a process that works for you around your products, around your services, around the transformation specifically that you want to talk to corporate clients about. And more importantly, you do it in a way that works for you, for your personality type, rather than, you know, looking at Jordan Belfort and going, okay, cool, well, I'm just going to cold call and smile and dial for, you know, 10 hours a day, because that might not be right. So no, you can absolutely start it with your own products and services, but you must have that clarity. What is the value that you are going to provide? What's that overall transformation that you're going to provide? Know that first, and then everything else becomes a lot easier. Jess, this has been a fantastic conversation in the world of corporate. And what I want to suggest for anybody who's curious to go more into the tactical and understanding the journey of going into corporate, I'll suggest you to go to selltocorporates.com. We'll have a link in the show notes as well. Whether you're looking to sell to corporates yourself or you want to team train the entire sales department into selling better to corporates, just as these trainings and so much more. You can even listen to her podcast as well. And there's one question, Jess, that I love asking every guest who comes on the show, which is you are on the Selling with Love podcast. So I'd love to ask you, what does Selling with Love mean to you? Do you know, I think Selling with Love to me means actually caring about providing the right solution to your client, whoever that might be. And that means selling the right thing every time, whether it is too deemed by you to be too expensive or too cheap because that is always going to get you multiple sales and it's going to make your client feel good and it's going to give you good delivery. And that's ultimately what we all aim for. Jess, thank you so much for your time. For everybody tuning in, I want to share some of the things I picked up the most from this conversation. Number one, I love Jess's idea of the reverse funnel being that instead of trying to reach the masses to possibly get one client, is you get so specific about an exact type of industry or decision maker you want to do business with and expand your web of relationships from there. And what's amazing about doing this is it's not about you know seeing who's going to be resonating with your message, but every single touch point is a stepping stone, an asset that is being built, not a conversation that could have actually been labeled as a time waste. Although no conversation is a time waste, I can definitely see the value of all these connection points within an industry that can really help you put your foot in the door and actually start having more success over time. I also picked up on the fact that you might not need to do all the marketing, the social media, all of the things that you know we have to build in online businesses when we are targeting consumers but you do need to do proactive outreaching. And regardless of if you're doing B2B or B2C, it is something I suggest everyone to get experience with. And the beauty is if you're doing business with corporates, the deal sizes are bigger. You're dealing with more relationships. You're dealing with solving bigger problems that are more quantifiable as well. And just walked us through the path that even if you haven't done it before, you don't get to carry the baggage of bad habits that many salespeople might have. You can start fresh, sell your own products and realize that a lot of organizations can get massive value from you jumping in, supporting their team and making an impact in the process. Once again, Jess, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing. And for all of you, keep selling with love, maybe to corporates as well. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.